Hi, my name's Tom Throffel. And I'm Ben Ashby. And I'm the co-host of the Future Proofing Finance podcast at the CFA. We dig deep into the latest innovations and technologies which are disrupting finance in the digital age. And yes, sometimes we talk about crypto. Today, I have the pleasure to be joined by John Cummins, who has a CV that reads somewhat like an encyclopedia, a story career over many decades in finance being called in to solve the trickiest banking situations over the last 30 years in the UK. Today, we'll be discussing the future of banking and some learnings of his about treasury management. John, welcome. Thank you very much. My first experience with John, uh, and I'm surprised he still wants to deal with me, but it was, you were always the fixer. You know, they always, because obviously it was uh, when Standard Life was having some issues itself at the time. And just where I was seeing, you've always been given the really difficult problems to fix in terms of companies about the balance sheet, what they need to do. So the last 10 years just seems to have been a, a real change. But given your insight on all these things at the moment what's your take at the moment about where we are in the financial system we obviously had svb failure we've had credit suisse basically being bailed out what's your take i think that's really interesting i think some of it's idiosyncratic so svb you, you can't buy 90 billion dollars of long dated mortgages and not hedge them it's kind of a simple rule if if you do um, i'm also president of uk asset and liability management association i really care deeply about asset and liability management We've, we've put forward a certificate in the balance sheet asset liability management, which I'd recommend to anyone who really wants to understand the guts of ALM and a bank. But you can't run that much naked interest rate risk and then not understand exactly. I think the, the, the interesting bit with the, with the regional banks in the US was the speed at which in the past you had a picture of people queuing outside Northern Rock. And now you've got a WhatsApp group meeting and then four hours later you lose $42 billion deposits. That is unheard of in terms of digital access to funds then brings forward this this risk which is why you've now got the banking announcing they're going to be looking at deposit insurance in the uk of 40 pounds but also in the liquidity coverage ratios up where banks post gfs post global financial crisis have been involved in that type of scale of disruption in terms of digital withdrawals has has been unheard of so now it was a function of not hedging your interest rate properly, having losses on your mark-to-market or your held-to-maturity bond book, and then losing deposits, and then it just scaled up and into, into a, a, an old-fashioned bank run. But partly is if, if you become much more of, of a wholesale digital bank with no, no banking footprint at all, you go back to something like Continental Illinois in the past, where the, in many banks were only allowed one-state banking provision. So you need to have a very diverse retail and wholesale um, de- deposit base, but because everything is now much more speed of speed of information, speed of technology, then you, you can actually get into some very interesting spaces very quickly. There's also a broader point about retail deposits that there are now software which now interest rates have risen. You can sign up for, and they will automatically match your rate to your deposits and move your put your deposit basis on 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 automatic pilot. Interesting thing there is it becomes much more valuable for all the major banks, and they've probably seen inflows. In the UK and other parts of the world, you've already seen $37 billion going to JP Morgan, where you can now see the focus will be on operating accounts because they're much harder to shift. So it'll be term deposits harder to break and operating accounts because then you get the money locked in for longer. And those are some of the defensive mechanisms people will bring in. Plus, you'll have greater regulatory focus on extreme stress test events. The problem with a long, date, a long period of low rates, when rates start moving again, you can actually have very, very extreme risks taken. And people, you saw this also with the LDI issues last summer. To give The reason I read economic history, financial history, not just because I'm boring, but it's also you can see this with 
I've been lucky enough to, to trade UK interest rates at 100% when we fell out of it, Sterling fell out of ERM in 1992, and I've seen them down at 10 basis points. Now, that's quite a wide range, but it's because 100% is so out of kilter, one month trade at 30%, and then you get into an interesting point. On that day, there were no prices on screens. There were not. So you, when you look at how much of the markets are now into disruption in terms of using quantitative taking screen prices, acting on them, algo trading, that's all great, but you've got to have some prices there to trade with. And then you old-fashioned, you ring people and say, what, what would you pay me? So I think that is a, that's an interesting lesson from 1992. But the, the, the issue here will be smaller wholesale digital banks, wherever they are, will be looking at the deposit security and deposit resilience, and the regulators will be looking at that as well. And there will be some risk coming from that. John, there's a number of strings to pull on there, uh, lots of them above my head, but I would go for a nice easy one, which is whose role would it have been to step in and help out a bit to clean up this? I mean, someone like me has never done, got the experience of you with ALM, and it's pretty obvious that they didn't have a clue what they were managing uh, in terms of liability there. It would be a failure of the ALCO. The Asset Liability Committee is the core. I always described it as an engine room for a bank. So it would be a failure of that in terms of not, not saying. I also read that they changed some of the model outputs because actually it's starting to, to, to be a red flag. If the model says there's a problem, then there's a problem. By changing the model, you don't actually change reality till it's too late. Also, I read that they didn't have a CRO for a period of time. That, is, that could or could not be the issue. But the main part is if you are getting compensated to take some sort of risk and you are not used to in the past, because we're very, if you're reading the Kahneman books or anything else, it's about we're always prisoners of our, our own heuristic biases. And the biases come through, so well, rates can never go up that much, but they can. So I always make the joke, in the 18th century, UK consul rates never moved from 2.5%. So that was, you know, imagine 100 years of monetary policy committee meetings with nothing moving. And then all of a sudden you get inflation, and then you get in the 1930s, there were seven years of no interest rate move in the UK, up to 1939 when rates started moving up again, for obvious reasons, in World War II. And then you got the inflation in the, in the 70s, and now you've got inflation coming back and rates have moved up in the UK and in the US. But these are benchmarks. They're also long-term trends. Sterling in 1918 was 4.75, sorry, 4, 4.50 against the US dollar. It's now 1.23. It's been going down for 100 years. So yeah, that should tell you something. But I think it's about learning from the past and also having enough people in a, in a committee where you, you're actually allowed to say, and you must say, when you disagree with senior people. Because if you don't disagree with senior people, senior people can be wrong as well. And I saw this with, with some of the behaviours of Sir Fred Goodman and other people. And, and if, you've got to have very strong intellectual and moral courage to, to say to people that isn't going to work when, when, when that could be the issue. And, and not hedging things is sometimes always hard to do because they're locking in a loss or they're, 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 they're wanting to. Hopefully it'll get better. But to quote Charles Dickens, Mr. McCorber is not a good person to have on a bank alco or any other alco, quite frankly. There's a lot in there. So I, I don't know where to start. I, on your final point, I agree with you. But one of the things we have seen in the last sort of cycle is a really de-skilling, I would have said, of a lot of the banks. You've had this horrible term, junification, where they've tried to strip out the costs. The other thing that I had seen as well is a lot of banks, which always shocked me, would treat the Treasury operation as a cost centre rather than actually a real key part of the entire operation. Would you say that's fair representation? Yeah, as long as you don't go the other extreme where it's just seen as a profit center. Because you've got to have a, a bias. I mean, the treasury center for a bank is effectively the policeman of the balance sheet. We call it the guardian of the balance sheet, RBS. 
because we had a lot to actually protect after and try and fix afterwards. But you, you, then you get into things like also where if liquidity is cheap, I mean, coming to the, the Credit Suisse failure, again, it's an example of no matter how much liquidity you have, once a run starts, I mean, they had a 50 billion credit, uh, Swiss franc line from the Swiss National Bank and it lasted two days. But you, you can see from Credit Suisse that they've been involved in a lot of other scandals such as Arcagos or tuna bonds or greens or whatever. And if you get the reputation of always being involved in, in difficult issues or whether it'd been some judgment, the Arcagos guy had been, uh, t- had done a, a plea bargain where he accepted he'd, he'd done insider trading. Yeah. People kept trading with him in the old, in the old fashioned city. If you were involved in something like that, you wouldn't, you wouldn't um, get counterparty trading, trading with you. So again, if you do short term, focus on profit you can sometimes it's all about what counterparties you trade with and what risk you're taking in terms of collateral and even the greatest biggest companies in the most experts uh, Trafogo were caught out in a nickel fraud about 500 600 million dollars so th- there are always people out there looking for fraud and when interest rates rise poor business models or situations only relied on cheap leverage and, and 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 cheap money get caught out and then then you then you, again, with, with the speed of reaction in terms of collateral moves, mark-to-market on, on, on exchanges, these are things which actually accelerate the requirement for high-speed, high-quality, high-speed collateral. And that always comes down to government bonds of, of, a, of G7 countries and cash. I was going to say, G7, do we still include BTPs? That somewhere I've worked previously was busy stripping them out of their uh, uh, liquidity requirements. Yeah, I, I don't want to get into situations where I'm seen to be criticizing countries, but people know if they really want core liquidity, then you would go to certain countries. However, having said all that, what I find interesting is the risk at the moment is not being registered about the potential US debt ceiling default. And, and it's, that's a very interesting insight, because if that ever comes to pass, and you've obviously, people in financial markets assume people will be rational, but don't forget the first time TARP was passed or didn't pass in 2008, the, the Dow Jones fell about 600 points because the House Congress didn't pass TARP, which was the relief bill for banks and equity. And then it was passed second time around. So you can get situations where you have extreme politics impacting on something like US. That's thing the last time this happened, the S&P downgraded the US from AAA to AA. So again, these, these, these wider risks out there are things where you just always, the reason I've always liked banking and treasury markets and financial markets generally is because you always can see the impact of geopolitical events, which we just saw with Ukraine. And then it's and that I think is really interesting in terms of how that impacted the food prices and, and the inflation is causing now some of the strike issues we have in terms of cost of living crisis in the UK and elsewhere. I totally agree. Can I go back to one of the other points you mentioned? So we've had a lot of people say that they can't see how banks will now work in the digital age. But just listening to what you were saying, it would suggest that you still think there's a role, but it's very much sounded like much bigger banks with much wider deposit franchises are the future. And I couldn't agree with you more when you talk about wholesale finance, digital banks. From being the disruptors, it looks to me like they are now very potentially open to being disrupted themselves because of just changes in consumer behaviour. Or would you say that's me misrepresenting your view? I think it's a slight misrepresentation because one of the points will be in a crisis, you always see a flight to to larger banks. It's 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 just knee-jerk reaction and then you because you don't want to as you found with svb they lost a third of the deposits in the uk as well you want to be in the first wave of people going out rather than the, the last wave where you might not be able to get your cash 
I also think disruption is another great example would be, for example, the foreign exchange markets where you had a company called XTX, X-ray, Tango X-ray. And that in five years is going to be number four in global FX markets. And that's about 125 people and hopefully a dog. I always like dogs. And I think that's a great example where disruption in a, in a, in a very competitive FX market, with, and they don't do this with wonderful research or, or ferocious salespeople. It's all about algo trading. And 95% of FX markets are algo trading. And they're number four in the world from nowhere. And it looked great to see that the, the main taxpayer in, in the UK is the founder of the company, and he supports math scholarships as well. So congratulations to him. But then also they've decided to go into equity trading. They've made real inroads. So again, it's your, if you, there's a great book called The Man Who Moved Markets by Zimmerman. And it was about the, the growth of Renaissance and, and quantitative hedge funds and how successful they've been. Because if you understand the drivers of this and you link that to, this is pre-artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence, Will bring some of this disruption even more closer into 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 view in terms of how banks manage ALM and insurance groups manage ALM in terms of managing automation and digitalization. So if you're a strong digital presence like to Mike XEX, you can still make a huge difference. It's just when it comes to bank funding and liquidity and confidence, it's about keeping that confidence at all costs because once it goes, as you saw with Credit Suisse, Signature Bank, and SVB, I mean it's the first time I've read about a WhatsApp meeting creating a run in four hours. That's actually something I wanted to tug on. You've, again, <laughs> two minutes of uh, talking. There's a, enough uh, threads to pull on for hours here. But one thing that's been fascinating me is the psychology of uh, people's expectations of banking now. We basically play a very simple game of prisoner's dilemma where you need to be early to, to, to be in the right. And, and that goes contrary to what a bank is meant to do, which is meant to, you know, we're meant to have confidence that that institution has, you know, the ability to service uh, the liabilities on any, any given day. Do you have any comment on uh, things like the WhatsApp group or, I mean, you know, the, the, the speed at which these things are done? Should should there be more friction involved or are there other solutions that I perhaps aren't, I'm not aware of? The board of SVP decided to communicate with their major investors and depositors in that way. So in one sense, they gave information to a subset of clients and they were not expecting the reaction they got. But you, you can have the same thing happening when, when events happen. For example, the start of World War I, every bank in the UK, including the Bank of England, was shut for five and a half days. So they, they shut the banks to run off gold coins. There's a great book called Saving the City by Richard Roberts. Sadly, he's dead now. He was a super guy. And, but the book itself is amazing because it does go into how they created the post office shilling, the Bradbury's, to be another, another currency that people could use because it was a five pound note and there was coins. There weren't enough in between to, to cover people being stranded in, stranded in the UK and, that, and everyone was worried about when the banks opened, would they have enough to be able to specie to give out? And that was actually how they, they, they managed that situation. Ironically, the bill market solution they then had in 1914 was very similar to one they used in 2008 to create liquidity in the mortgage market. So again, some of these things, it, that's why I always tell people to read history because it's not a boring subject when you realize how some of these, these things can actually come and show you the risks which are still there. Another great example I, I, I was going to use later on when it comes on to technology risks and threats is in 1914, the first thing the Royal Navy did was to cut the, the cable between Germany and America. That's immediately the first thing they did is to disrupt your enemy's communication. So there was no direct transatlantic communication between Germany and America all the way through World War I. The, 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 the cable going across the Atlantic now it takes about $10 trillion a, a day. It just takes one person to cut it. So I think these are risks. When you become more digital, more focused on cloud, 
and data, then it's a backup to the data and how you actually keep your data. I was speaking at a recent Alma conference and I said, I always keep paper statements and people all laughed at me and said, well, yes, I'm from the generation I used to have to go into a red box and make a phone call rather than just pick up a mobile. My children always laugh at this. But if you have a bank statement, you have a record. If, if systems go down and can't be recovered, what record do you have? So I think some of this stuff is just good common sense and housekeeping. But from a bank point of view, you want to save costs. So you want everyone to go electronic and digital. And you're pushing the work onto the customers, which is fair enough. But I think some of those examples I use are about technology disruption can be states. I mean, there's a great book, David Sanger, The Secret Weapon, about all the different countries' cyber attacks. And now cyber has become an existential threat to all financial institutions in terms of how much you would spend on it, how much you avoid fraud on your customers, how much, how much you actually use on making sure you can withstand these denial of service attacks, which will continue to come from state actors as well as criminals. We had uh, one of our other guests who made the same point as yourself, just saying that the real risk of cyber coming through and what it does mean for the financial system. Do you think that people will only take it seriously, though, once there is an enormous hack and perhaps damage of a financial system, whether it's an institution or indeed an entire country, or do you think they're moving towards it? Because it strikes me that the complex web of most bank systems, how they've been kind of cobbled together over the years, is is just right for somebody punching a hole for it at some point? Or do you think that's overly pessimistic? It's pessimistic, but there's a bit, bit of reality to it. I mean, at RBS, and I think it was 2012, we, we managed to lose our systems for quite a period of time. And I was also managed to be downgraded by Moody's from P1 to P2 on the very same day all my systems fell down. But that's just God for you. Um, and when this stuff happens, you've just got to be ready and resilient to, to meet, meet how you actually can move payments and, and, and think. That's why I think scenario analysis and wargaming is actually very important for senior risk officials in, in, all, in all banks. And that's what they do. I think it's also very interesting, for example, uh, people don't talk about how you can hack into nuclear power stations. The original 9-11 hijackers were going to fly the planes into nuclear power stations. They weren't going to fly into the Twin Towers and the Pentagon. My wife always says by this stage that I read so much negative stuff, it's actually scary. But it's just that I've, I've read broadly on risk because it's, it's, it's a really interesting topic that you have to think of. And the amazing thing is, more and more now, some of the, some of the, the issues people say about you know, future, future politics have, have come, to, come to pass in terms of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. If we'd have taken different actions at the end of Russia's invasion of Crimea, maybe some of this stuff wouldn't have happened. But when people get addicted to cheap energy, there are consequences when people want to use it as a weapon. I couldn't agree more. What would you see as the key risks for you at the moment in the short term? And I know we've got the risk that there can be some tail event, but what would you say the real things in the market at the moment are concerning and which ones do you think are not priced properly? I think there's still a the cyber risk, which is a which is a risk which hasn't really seen enough understanding of how, how much that could really do. I think climate risk continues to be a risk. People talk about it, but will not really hit them until until they're flooded, for example. Um, I was lucky enough or unlucky enough to be flooded in the day of Brexit. And I left my wife in a foot of water and I went to do on the Brexit work and didn't come back for 36 hours. So, so I always have a view that God sends you weather for a reason. And I, I do think that when you, you see some of the issues that I'm going to face in terms of some of Florida and some of the, the, the real issues that increasing sea levels were post for, for example, nuclear power stations based on on, on, on the seashores, that, that's something which people haven't really factored into yet. I mean, there's a, there's a nuclear power station 20 miles from Miami called Turkey Point, and that's um, 10 feet away from sea level. 
there's interesting Tornas power station shut down for a day um, because jellyfish got into the water intakes because the water's now warm enough for them. And that costs 1.5 million pounds just for one day shutdown. So I think these type of risks are interesting, which probably don't always get the kind of the, the kind of publicity. But I think when it comes to financial market risks, then you still got the ongoing threat of higher interest rates. What does that mean in terms of when people come off their fixed rate mortgages? You've got a squeeze on energy costs as well and how people are going to cope with this. I also think, you know, I grew up in the 70s and, and 80s. Um, and even when we had the, the three-day strike and, and three-day week, sorry, and the coal miners strike in the 70s, we didn't have food banks because there was still a, enough of a social safety net. Whereas now you've got 20% of various population demographics and cohorts, you having to use food banks, even one in next door to where I am in Wimbledon. And I think that's a, that's a, says a lot about society where that now has to happen. And that, that is not discussed in terms of social disorder. That could happen. I know it's a slightly populist book, but the uh, fourth turning talks about, uh, the, as you know, two economic historians, but their view was um, after the financial crisis, which they predicted in the early 90s, that they talk about this sort of like stagnation in the economy, huge increase between the rich and the poor, um, more rise of nationalism, populism, call it for whatever you will. And it all seems to be pretty much following to that, that path at the moment. Worryingly, they talk about a second crisis, which is the one where it'll be a bit of a make or break for society. But I, I agree, it's very much in line. And we've seen these things in the past, but it, it seems to be worse than it has been for decades. Yeah, but then you have to, it's a relative versus absolute. Absolutely, there was a lot more poverty in the 19th century. I mean, the reason we brought free milk and school meals in was post the Boer War, where one in three of our recruits was rejected, not being strong enough. The British government didn't do it because they liked people, they did it because we wanted better recruits. So, so I think when you look at absolute versus relative, that's where you can actually, if you think about how much wealth and health has been created, even now compared to 100 years ago then we're in a far better place. It's just all about how you, how you help others to make sure that human capital continue to, to grow and improve for everyone. So when it comes to CFA students and how you're going to be resilient for your career, it's always about being curious, making sure you understand some of these broader risks and, and being, being well-read. And, and both my companies, RBS and LNG, I, I organize speed reading courses for people because there's so much information gets created every every day now and every year compared to previous years and decades. Uh, any tools that help you maneuver through the data and the knowledge is, is going to help you in terms of gaining wisdom. I've got a quick question for you, John, just on tools. I'm a little bit of a technologist, or rather I run a technology company, but I'm the, uh, the non-technical founder. Have you uh, played at all with uh, things like GPT? And do you understand broadly what they're doing? Um, there's been a really interesting development in the last couple of weeks that I'll get into if, if that's something that, you've, uh, that you know a little bit about. Yeah, I know a little bit about it. I wouldn't pretend to be an expert. I do read Exponential View by Azim Azar, and I do read some other other kind of technology inputs, but it's more from the risk angle in terms of what AI can bring. AI can also bring a really interesting element of success into investing, for example. But there's also going to be like, for example, a third of the content put on Bloomberg is now written by machines. So you have to be really good skills, which a lot of the CFA skills have, but then it's also about having the curiosity and, the, and building up 
a range of specialized knowledge that whatever happens with AI, you're still relevant. And it's that relevancy which comes from curiosity, comes from deep technical knowledge. I mean, the previous CEO, no, I can't exactly remember years, of the CEO of the SVB bank took $30 million out of the bank. And it's just debt. So, it's, it, so I think, you know, technology can add a huge amount of value and also risk. And AI is, is a really good tool, but it's got to be understood how, how, how close are you to singularity and how close are you to... And, I mean, Stephen Hawking's warned about it. And that is, that is an interesting man for him to warn about this stuff. There's certainly a lot of brains at the moment in Silicon Valley that are saying to slow down for a moment just so we can capture what, what might be changing is changing too fast for us to understand sometimes. But uh, I'll, I'll move on to a, another thread that uh, you, uh, you skip by by one of your many, many very salient points about um, asset values. And I was wondering if we could come back to that. You said, I think Ben was posing the question about, um, you know, the big risks um, and you uh, brought up uh, interest rate risk a number of times. And I was wondering if, yeah, I was just going to phrase it as a, is there anything, I mean, people all talking about office uh, repricing at the moment, but what, is, what, you know, when you're looking at repricing at the moment, what do you, what do you, uh, well, the investors have worried just, about? Just, the investors just put a report out on, on real assets and repricing with interest rates. So they've got some very good points there in terms of, there's still demand for high quality offices, but with the hybrid working, and not everyone's going to be a JP Morgan managing director, maybe hopefully people on this call will be, then, then you, you, you're going to have different ways of working. And it's also about talking about retail. I mean, retail, percentage of retail online has gone in 20 years from 2% of the US to 14%. That's 14% of less requirements for, for bricks and mortar retail. Uh, I have two teenage daughters, well, one now 20-year-old and a teenager, and they might go out shopping, but they come back and order online. So that's a, that's a different model. And then that's then that, that that's how knock-on impacts to last mile logistics, whereas the value there. And then it's just about people are still social, so they need to come in and work with other people to create that type of information flows and, and mentoring. And that's about actually making different solutions happen. But at the same time, people want to have a, a, a broader hybrid existence because I think the average saving is 72 minutes when you're working at home. And if you use more, you know, if you use chunk of that for work then work should benefit but you do miss on the the glue of social of socialization in terms of companies and that's why Aviva have gone to three days a week but asset valuations will always be a function of interest rates and also a function of where you can see bubbles have appeared and then disappeared and you know the, i always say that book this time it's different it's really worth at least understanding in terms of it's a mantra it's that's been used repeatedly by people saying it's a new paradigm and then it all goes bust again interest rates catch people out i i was very surprised with the attitudes of 2021 when you look through and even if you looked at the studies i think there was one done at oxford university and the guy basically said you're going to get a big burst of inflation after you get a pandemic this is how they're likely to come through we've talked a lot about the negatives but can i ask where you really see the sort of opportunities going forward in the last three to five years one of the things that we've been sort of pushing is we think a lot of investors are very much underexposed to say venture capital because of the wider technological shifts that you allude to earlier on and actually particularly uk and cfa type investors we're very much focused on traditional asset sets so i was just wondering where do you see opportunities and do you think that's a fair view of perhaps how to invest going forward or as as an asset class that especially now valuations have come up, uh, come off uh, more attractive. 
Yeah, I do think it's attractive. I think the the, the, the bits there will be, if you look at the area I work in now in regeneration and, and, and in infrastructure and renewables, that it's a university cluster towns, which are actually not just a golden triangle, but but other opportunities, you know, the Pandemic Institute and also the Little School of Tropical Medicine, for example, got $300 million from Bill Gates. Now, not many people know that that kind of cluster in Liverpool exists, but it does. And then you can see other other great work being done in in the north in the northern cities as well. And your GCHQ moved its northern headquarters up into Manchester. So Manchester's got a very good, strong tech hub. So I think these are things where, and obviously there'll be a lot of talk about solvency two reforms, which my colleagues are working on in terms of bringing this into play. But you've got to have an ecosystem that supports the actual growth. And we've had a really good growth in Hull in, in wind, wind turbines, but then you need the actual all-round support. And they've got the offshore, offshore catapult in, in Grimsby, for example. So I think these are just examples. We, we don't always talk about the good stuff that's going on. And you don't forget what we did in the pandemic with, with Oxford and other, other life sciences that's seen as one of our best strengths. But again, it's about how you support the ecosystem at, at the technical level, as well as the, the advanced research level, and then making it into, into offerings for VCs. So we've, Aviva, been very supportive of, of a lot of these nor, Northern University spin-outs, Northern Gridstone and North Star Ventures. And there's another one recently being launched in, in the Midlands. And I think that's a great, good, good news part as well as just the Oxford, Cambridge and Imperial. Uh, you've got these other universities clubbing together to build up this expertise in VC, which could then be create the next unicorns. And it's having that. But they, for the UK, the challenge will be to create the next unicorns and keep them rather than at some state they just get bought out by US funds and money. And even after the recent deep, deep layer layoffs in the tech world, still about 30% of, of, of investment still happens in the Silicon Valley. They just need a new bank. We've had a couple of investors on and they were saying that what you often see is the UK gets the cool technology, it gets to a certain point, but then the last stage, it tends to be the US or occasionally Asian investors that come in and it disappears. There seems to be very much a sort of like view of, well, at least it's been done, the money goes back into the UK economy. But to me, it just seems... You want it to stay. You want it to stay because it creates really great long-term jobs yeah. and companies and you want it to stay. And we're strong at this stuff, so we just need to whether or not golden share from government or whether just bigger investments from, from different types of investment institutions. But if you want to create match some of the leveling up initiatives, then you do need to have like, this has got to be done over decades because it's taken decades for the in, in inequalities between North and South to happen. And this, there was, they were talking about these inequalities in the 1930s, for example. Can I um, just, so just summing up and putting you slightly on the spot, if we were look forward 18 months, and we were going to look forward 10 years, what would you expect the world to look like in 18 months' time based on everything where we are at the moment? So that's perhaps more relying on your banking experience and capital markets and 10 years' time, just seeing what you're investing in and everything else. I think in 18 months' time, you, you'll probably see a reduction in inflation, a reduction in interest rates, and you, you'll see you know, some, some reasonably, hopefully, strong growth in, in certain areas. You're going to still continue to see the growth in the things the UK has always been particularly strong at: specialist engineering, life sciences, universities, and it's and it's and then how creating that kind of longer term value pharmaceuticals. All those all those areas will continue to to show good growth. You're seeing great investment not just in the Golden Triangle, but Northern Gridstone raised over two hundred million pounds, for example, in Manchester, Leeds, and Sheffield universities. So their 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 things will will grow. I think in ten years' time, I think you'll continue to see China do very well. I think the, the opportunity people don't talk about is India 
because they're going to be the, the most populous country in the world. And from my ABSA experience, I think Africa's got some amazing opportunities on a pan-African basis. If you look at the, the population demographics of urbanization in Africa, you mean uh, Nigeria is on track to end up being 400 million people. Now, if those jobs are created in Africa, they'll stay in Africa. But the climate, UN, UN Development Agency has also talked about the fact that climate migration will continue to see people migrate because some parts of the, the equator will be uninhabitable. And so that, you know, if you think about the forecast from the UN was 250 million economic migrants via climate and Syria had 8 million. So some of those things are, are continued. They will still be a challenge in 10 years time. But I think there's, you've got a room to be optimism in terms of some of the good technology things that are happening and the good things that can happen in, in the West. And, and we, will, we will have to find a way to, to work with and live with China. I mean, China's share of global GDP was the same as it was in the 15th century. It took 500 years to mean revert. And don't forget some of the very extremely poor behavior the West did in Asia overall, and especially in China. They, and they have long memories and they don't forget it. So they've come back to the share of global GDP. When we took India in 1757, India had a 28% share of global GDP. When we left, it was four. And that was 190 years of rule. Cricket and railways aside, that's, that's not a great advert for empire. So I think we have to be humble in terms of, of our legacy and history and how we can work with other parts of the world. We've got sort of some English language through a lot of goodwill, but actually be adult about some other things we should do to work with our former colleagues. Thanks for that, John. So just to wrap up, you've uh, mentioned a couple of things you're up to, but if you could just kind of outline what you're up to now, how people could follow you. I know you've never been a great one for social media, which you've said on a few occasions, but also just what Aviva's up to and if people want to kind of uh, um, look at some of the opportunities through them. Yeah, so we have a website, Aviva Capital Partners, and we're, we're using the group's balance sheet to invest in opportunities that create deeper, longer-term partnerships and relationships and longer-term asset flows into, into the different fixed income requirements we have in Aviva funds and Aviva annuity funds. And what we're really doing is creating opportunities that we'd be able to pay our pensioners. Because at the end of the day, if you, if you don't get growth in populations, you need to be more productive to actually create income streams that you can pay pensions. So we've got an appetite for 20-year assets because we've got 20-year liabilities and 25-year liabilities. So that, that ALM long-term mismatch is about demographics, it's about yield, and it's about getting, getting the right risk reward for actually investing in, hopefully, infrastructure around the UK, create jobs in the UK. We have 60 million customers in the UK, and we want to invest in our own country, and we want to help all the different parts where we've got major, major operations. And we will continue to invest in renewables, infrastructure, and, and real assets. We actually can create that asset. We will take the equity risk to create some of it. So it's just good further supply of, of, of equity capital into this world, into this space from other UK insurers as well, because it, it meets our requirements. The, the, the long-dated sterling market, bond market, we need to find other ways to, to create assets that will pay us a return, which will give us a good return to, to pensioners. I think it's actually a really interesting space in terms of what you can do when you think long terms in terms of how we're going to create homes and real assets that will actually help people. What do you think perhaps the government and CFA members could do to help this? Well, I mean, I'd rather leave to my public affairs colleagues to talk about what, what governments can do because that's their job. And I, 
I don't want to be sitting, get, getting in their way, but we, we do input into both parties in terms of, of, of suggested policy initiatives. I think CFA members should all think about what else they can do using their valuable skills. So I think, and I've been lucky enough to do some NEDs for pro bono purposes. And I think using those skills, one, don't wait till you're in your 50s to do it. Do it in your 30s because people will want you and people want different different age views and different different color views and and don't be don't be shy about putting yourself up for quite interesting jobs and also don't be shy once you think you can once you complete your cfi there's lots of other whether it's ai whether it's climate whether it's cyber whether it's just understanding even more about some of the some of the requirements to give you those skills is to is to always be curious I, when i talk to our future talent programs internally and speak to people I mentor and stuff. It's all about the curiosity, but it didn't kill the cat. It actually, actually makes you better. If you really understand. I mean, I read the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, not because I'm a nuclear scientist, because I'm not, I'm a historian, but they've got really interesting stuff there. And it's not, Yale, Yale 360 is a bi-weekly publication for $50. And they've got really interesting commentary about how you, for example, can plant 11 million trees and after one year, 10 million of them are dead, both in the Philippines and Turkey. So, so it's just always been curious about when you talk about purpose, because more and more CFA holders want to see purpose in their companies and especially ESG investing, that it's not just greenwashing. Now. You're going to make a real difference. You can make a real difference yourself because there are many institutions would love to have the type of skills and the rigor you show to, to pass a CFA, something I have a huge respect for. And I think using those skills would be great. Just, just quickly, would you be able to outline some of the steps to, you know, the, or the steps you went through to get these NED positions? I know we're running up to time. Yeah, I actually did a seminar for both uh, UCAS and RT Manager Association and, and internally in the finance. And I was very happy to run a, a Zoom call for any CFA members who are interested in going through. There are various specialist NED headhunters. There are specialist publications. The Cabinet Office publish a, a list of all government NEDs that anyone can look at and apply for. And I'm more than happy to, to run a, a Zoom or a follow-up session. Because I think as well, when we, people think, oh, well, it's only for old men with gray hair like me. Well, one, they want a lot more diversity now than old men with gray hair. But if you, I was lucky enough to be an ed of a bank of 35, and I was looking to be an ed of a major global charity of 37. Now I was very interested, but I got that, that the, the global vaccine charity ned through an advert in The Economist. And that was a real fluke, because normally you don't, get considered if you even if you apply because it's a un procurement requirement but i was um, i knew enough about treasury and capital markets they wanted someone with that deeper experience so i just think you you've got to find stuff you're passionate about whether it's children or in my case public health and education or whether it's football or, or whatever cancer and, and then just start start early because all cfa holders have got immense skills up a lot of charities and, and different pro bono ngos will be very interested in I believe, from all from all genders and from all ages. So true. I uh, sit on the board of a uh, sports charity, and it's very, very hard to get people to volunteer. And I think half the reason is because, exactly as they say, they think it's all a bunch of old men um, with grey hair who, who dominate everything. But despite adverts, we've had some real issues getting people stepping up. Well, well old men and grey hair is very useful in our code, shall we say. Yes. Because <laughs> you, can, you can avoid some of the issues some of these banks face. But at the same time, I would, I would be happy to follow up and give a teaching on how you can apply for this stuff. Because I just think it's great if CFA holders of all different age cohorts and genders 
and 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 uh, and interest could get involved because your skills have been hard fought and hard won, and they 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 should be used for greater society rather than just very poorly for for the, your employers as well. Brilliant. With that, I think that's the end. We've come to time. Thank you very much for your time, John. It's it's always fantastic to chat to you. And you've got so much knowledge as we kind of found out through the call. And I suspect the CFA will be in contact. So that's all from me. Thank you very much. Tom, final words? John, I'm going to take you up on that, even if the CFA don't, because I would love to learn a bit more about that. It's a part of my, the next part of my career and my, you know, my wife's and my friends. So I'd, I'd love to know personally if, if, there's no, uh, if there's no other vehicle to do it, because... Uh... It's just email me. Look, I was, I was really lucky in my first one. I mean, you don't normally get it from an economist ad. And then I kind of just went after stuff and then it just like I'm interested. I just so for example, I'm now director of research for the University College London um, Institute of Financial Technology. Again, pro bono because I hope people connect connect up. I just yeah, I, I learn as well. He's got to never stop learning. Thank you very much, John. Really enjoyed chatting, John. <laughs>